Well, good morning, everybody. It is so good to be with you this morning. It's good to worship with you. Uh, and I'm excited that we are now diving into week four of this sermon series, Virtual Reality. So I figured some of you probably haven't been here every week. Maybe this is your first week uh, to be a part of this series. So it would be worthwhile to do a little bit of a recap. Um, so basically, this series is trying to answer the question, what do we as Christ followers do in a crazy, broken digital world? How do we, uh, you know, exist with all this technology around us that influences, influences us in so many different ways? And so uh, the first sort of principle that we've been looking at, by the way, five biblical principles, that's what this series is all about. The first principle that's been kind of guiding our whole discussion is this, you are on a mission. We, we've been uh, reminding ourselves that, that in this broken digital world, we are on a mission. In other words, as the people around us in our, in our culture, in our community are being just chewed up uh, by the excesses of so many of our new technologies, we have a responsibility as followers of Jesus to move into the filth and to, to transform this world in Jesus' name. Um, and we've been spending a lot of time talking about what that might look like. And actually, just before the, the first service, um, I don't know if you guys know Kyle Shelf, uh, really sweet guy, part of Grace Church, and he reminded me of a perfect example of someone who used technology on a mission, Mr. Rogers. What a great example of somebody who, he didn't even like TV, but he started an entire TV show to reach latchkey kids with the love of Jesus. That was his, well, he didn't talk about Jesus, but you know what I mean. That was his reason for that. Anyway, I thought what a great example, and uh, Kyle and I are both big fans of Mr. Rogers. Okay, so week two, we kind of got into the nitty-gritty of it. Like, what about the content that we consume? And the principle, the biblical principle that we looked at there was garbage in, garbage out. Garbage in, garbage out. What we consume, the things that we shovel into our minds day in and day out, have a huge influence on the kinds of people we become. And here's why that matters. Because if we're on a mission to heal this broken world, then we, as followers of Jesus, we cannot be the ones just adding more garbage to the pile, right? We've got to pay attention to what goes in because it'll change what comes out. Last week, we talked about the hyper-addictive nature of so much of the technology in our world right now, and we looked at the biblical principle that Sabbath breaks chains. Sabbath breaks chains. Uh, this, this concept of Sabbath, which in Scripture was stopping work for a day, one day out of every week, that same principle, we can take that and apply it to the, the addictive technology that wants to wrap us in chains. We can stop, and when we do, it helps us remember that we are actually free. And yesterday was, uh, was a great example of that. Many of you, and I'm not going to make you put your hands up because I know some of you guys weren't able to do it, but we together as a church practiced this with no screen Saturday. So the challenge was to spend one a whole day with no screens at all. And, and I did it, and I, this is like the second time I've, I've done this officially, and I got to tell you, here's what I learned yesterday with no screens at all. My day was so long, in like in a good way, not in a boring way, although I suppose that could be the case. But I just had so much time on my hands. I, I was doing all these things, and I'd look at the clock, and I'm like, it's only one o'clock. And I'd go, and I'd read a book for a little bit and have a conversation. and be like, wait, it's only two? It's amazing how much time I had. And it, it really helped me recognize, oh, these little, these little things that I go, I'll go check this for five minutes. I'll go take a look at this. So I'll watch TikTok for a bit. 
that adds up and really, really eats into my day. And it was a big eye-opening experience, just as I hoped it would be. So if you didn't do it, I'm encouraging you to try it out. No screen Saturday, no screen any day. Give it a shot, and it will help you see your own habits and addictions in new lights. So that, that's uh, what week three was all about. Okay, so today, week four, we are going to talk about identity, our identity, who we are online and who our, our digital world wants us to be. Because identity is a really significant part of, of the mission that we are doing in this world. Now, when I talk about identity, I think it's important to pay attention to two specific problems that have become absolutely epidemic in our digital world. And these problems, I call them tribalism and vanity. Tribalism and vanity. So before we look at the principles from Scripture, let's talk about the problem. What is tribalism? Well, tribalism is just my way of describing this, this in-grouping and out-grouping that happens so frequently in our world. We, we, uh, we surround ourselves with people who are just like us, and then we shun outsiders. That's tribalism. We form into our little, our little tribes. Now, here's why we do this. Because we're actually wired, biologically, we are wired to be communal people. We are, we, you know, we need, we need connections with other people. This is, this is a significant part of what it means to be human. But today, in this digital world, things are getting out of hand. Things are getting out of hand because social media platforms and, and these algorithms that we've been talking about throughout this whole series, they are, are exploiting that biological need for profit. That, that need that we have to connect, they are, they are exploiting it. You and I, we need to belong somewhere. That's, that's how we're wired. And so the algorithms say, great, yeah, I'll help you with that. I'll connect you with people who think and look just like you. Boom. That sounds great. What a, what a, what a wonderful time to be alive. Except, except true community has never been monolithic. Right? True community, deep, the, the, the best of human culture does not happen without the diversity of thought that comes from people who are not the same. That's what makes human culture thrive. And so it seems nice that we're able to, to completely be surrounded by other people who are, are, have our same opinions about pirate bandanas or something like that. But, but realistically, when we are completely monolithic in our community, it changes us. All of a sudden, you, you see this. Our biases get reinforced, don't they? When we're in our tribe, our, our people on the other side start to look more and more like monsters and not just other people, right? It's confirmation bias and all of that. And the algorithms know that if they can play on those things, they're going to get more engagement because outrage makes people stick around. That makes people click longer, stay longer, watch longer. Outreach, I mean, outrage drives engagement. Put simply, tribalism, tribalism warps our worldview because we are hungry for affirmation, for the affirmation that comes from belonging. No wonder our culture is seething with, with hate and rage right now because the algorithms are shoving us into the corner. No wonder we're seeing this turn into real-world violence. Online tribalism has real-world effects. So that's problem number one. Problem number two, as I call it, is uh, vanity. Vanity, which the dictionary defines as excessive pride in one's appearance or qualities or abilities or achievements. Excessive pride. 
See, we don't just want to belong, that's important to us, but we also want to be liked. We want to be impressive. We want to be popular. It, it is human nature to desire the affirmation of others, right? Again, this is a, a biological wiring. But again, algorithms, they are, are having a field day with this. These algorithms know that if someone tags you on a, in, in a photo and you get a notification, what are you going to do? You're going to go look at that photo right away because you want to know whether you look good or look like a dope. And so you click on the thing and you, you look at it and boom, they've got you. Now they can show you an ad, right? It engages you because you d- deeply want to be affirmed by the world. Uh, another example, Facebook. They, uh, they know that if you are changing your profile picture, it is a particularly vulnerable moment for you because you're putting a new image of yourself out into the world that you want to be defined by. And so what do they do? They take that image and they put it right to the top of all of your friends' feeds so that they will like it and give you affirmation because they know that it'll start you on a spiral, which will make you coming back for more, right? It'll make you keep coming back, coming back. That's what these algorithms are doing. And here's what this spiral does. Because we all get caught in this spiral of, of vanity, of, of, of trying to make ourselves look really good, we end up painting the picture that our lives are beautiful and perfect and successful, and other people see that, and what does it make them want to do? Post their own lives as beautiful and perfect and successful, and we see that and think, well, what should I do? I should post my life as beautiful. You get the point. You get the point. It's a spiral. That's how you get more likes. That's how you get affirmed. The algorithms know that the affirmation you receive from looking beautiful or cool or impressive or intelligent online is going to grip you with an addiction for more. Cha-ching. They've made another dollar. Tribalism and vanity are epidemic in our digital world. And the algorithms are just fanning the flames of this, right? They're fanning the flames. They have twisted essential human needs. We need affirmation. We need to belong. That's human. But now those needs are being met in a deeply harmful and dangerous way. Now, that's already a little intense, but I need to raise the stakes just a little bit more. I need to raise the stakes a bit more because this would be bad enough if it just affected adults. But it's not. Obviously, it's not. Kids and young adults are being ravaged by this tidal wave of online culture, and it's not getting better. Rates of mental health problems for adolescents, the statistics show that they've gone up year over year consistently since 2011. You know what happened in 2011? That's when social media platforms became pretty much commonplace, that that teens could start having access to them. After 2011, mental health gets worse and worse and worse year over year. And today... 95% of teens in America have smartphones. That access comes with a cost. For example, in a a study by the CDC just last year, one in three adolescent girls has seriously considered attempting suicide. I'm going to say that again. One in three adolescent girls have considered attempting suicide. That's what they're saying in, in, in this time that we're living in. Meanwhile, meanwhile, and statistics show this changing too, an ever-growing number of adolescent boys are exposed to misogynistic or extremist content every single day, right? They are being shoved into tribes before they are even uh, grown up. This is happening. No wonder things are a mess. No wonder. Our identities 
are being shaped by these profit-driven algorithms made by multi-billion dollar tech companies. They don't care. These algorithms do not care what they feed you. They just want to keep you clicking. And it's destroying us. We are, are effectively little more than cogs in the machine. Like I said, it's heavy. It's heavy. So what do we do? What do we do? Well, I do have some good news, and I've said this every week. This is the one little bit of sliver of hope that we have. Technology changes, but human nature doesn't. Technology changes, but human nature doesn't. And I am so glad that's the case, because as it turns out, tribalism and vanity, those go back a really long while. <laughs> uh, people in the early church were dealing with it as well. And so we're going to look for some wisdom from our, our spiritual ancestors here in, in uh, uh, the book of 2 Corinthians uh, and 1 Corinthians because the church in Corinth had a big issue with tribalism and vanity. So let's pray and then we'll get into it. Well, Father God, obviously we need your help on this one. This is a major issue that we are living in a world that is so, so broken and we are all kind of been being swept along with it. And so, God, as we seek your word for wisdom and, and guidance, I pray that you would open our minds and open our eyes. Pray that I as, I, as I'm preaching, I would simply disappear and allow your Holy Spirit to remain. And I pray that you would give us all ears to hear what you have to say this morning. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Okay, before we dive into the actual passage for today, I want to give you a little bit of some background, some world behind the text. And a great place to start is actually with some uh, geography. Who loves geography? I do, right? Let's look at a map. Actually, this is like a, a Google Earth sort of image. Corinth was a city that was, uh, by the Romans, was made as the capital of the entire province of Achaia. And so this was the, basically the, the Washington, D.C. of that entire province. And uh, let's zoom in to this other little map here. And you can see that Corinth played a significant role on this uh, isthmus. I always, isthmus? Somebody say it for me. Sure. I, yeah, that's got to be right. Um, Corinth was, had these two ports that were perfectly situated to give them access to all the markets coming from Italy and everything out, out west, as well as all the markets of the Aegean Sea and what is today Turkey and Egypt and all of that. So Corinth was basically the place that everybody went through. It was the, the epicenter. It was, the, it was kind of like the, the New York or the, the Hong Kong or the London of its day. All the economic and political and cultural world went straight through Corinth. Okay, so I tell you all this. I give you this kind of background because the people of Corinth, including and perhaps especially the people in the church, were deeply influenced by all this cultural all these trends that kept flowing right through. Uh, they were influenced by the wealth. It was a fabulously wealthy city. They were influenced by the fame. I mean, all these major politicians and bigwigs are coming through. Uh, the, the celebrity culture that was there, who was the best speaker, who was the best this. And of course, all the sex and all the drugs, all the stuff that was sweeping through Corinth, it had a big influence on the church. And just like today, tribalism and vanity were epidemic. They were epidemic. So the Apostle Paul, uh, he went to Corinth in about AD 50 or 51, and he stayed in Corinth for about a year and a half. He helped plant the church, helped get it up and running, and he had a really simple message for the people of Corinth. In Christ, there is no Jew or Gentile. 
There is no slave or free, male or female. We are all one in Jesus. That was his message. That was the gospel. Jesus has, has broken down all the barriers that, that, that keep us away from one another. We are one. And when we surrender our lives to him, we can live in freedom and abundance and life. Okay? That's the good news. That's amazing. But after he left Corinth, Paul started hearing reports that they had started devolving into tribalism into these different tribes. Uh, they started, you know, saying which apostle was their favorite, which, which team were they on. And, and Paul's like, guys, I, I just left you. Why would you be saying all these things? So he wrote them a letter. And that letter is called 1 Corinthians to us in our Bibles. Um, but he tried to address this, this tribalism head on. He said this. He said, look, some of you are saying, I'm a follower of Paul. Others are saying, I follow Apollos. Or I follow Peter. Or I follow only Christ. Guys, has Christ been divided into factions? Right? Was I, Paul, crucified for you? Of course not. Of course not. He's like, guys, get it through your heads. Tribalism has no place in the church. But of course it had a big place in Corinth. So tribalism was an issue. Um, but so was vanity. Vanity was a major issue because people in the church there, they had a lot to be wowed by when it came to wealth and power and fame and all of that. And so there were some people in the church who started to think that because they had all this new freedom in Jesus, because all their sins were washed away, they could kind of live however they wanted. And so they started peacocking around town and, and waving their wealth around and they were just like living like kings. And again, Paul, in that letter, he says, Look, guys, you got to knock this off. He's, he says, you think you, you already have everything you need, right? You, you think you're already rich. You've begun to reign in God's kingdom without us, mocking them, of course, and being, you know, dripping with sarcasm. Paul's like, guys, you got to knock this off. You can't live like this. You can't live like this. Now, he sent that letter, and presumably he thought, okay, I did it. I, I solved the issue. They now know. <laughs> they know how to live. But of course, that's not what happened, is it? No, no, it's not what happened because things actually started getting worse in Corinth. Uh, sometime between the, the, the writing of 1 and 2 Corinthians, uh, some new apostles showed up in town and they were the hot stuff. Uh, Paul actually refers to them sarcastically as super apostles. Uh, presumably, these guys were like the TikTok influencers of their day because they were cool and they were great at public speaking and they had all the right recommendations and they probably dressed really nice and they probably smelled amazing. Like these guys were like, they were it, right? They were sparkling. And they inevitably made Paul look like a dusty, washed-up loser. Making matters worse, these guys are all strutting about, talking about how incredible they are, and Paul's getting thrown into prison in Ephesus, right, because of his faith. And so if you're a, a, a very um, a Corinthian Christian and you're very concerned with your image, which horse are you going to back? Who are you going to back? The super apostles? The big, bright, shiny guys? Or are you going to, this guy who's getting thrown in prison across the Aegean Sea? Come on. We all know who we're going to follow. It's the super apostles. And so Paul, he realizes, all right, this vanity, this tribalism, the, the, the team picking is getting out of hand in Corinth. And so he has to write another letter. In fact, he's actually writing this letter as he's on his way to Corinth, um, doing, you know, making his way back from Ephesus to Corinth the long way. He writes them the letter basically saying, get ready because I'm on my way. And, and here's what he says. He's basically saying, look, your identity is out of whack. You've got an identity issue, Corinthian Christians. 
So let's take a look at what he says in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. You can turn there with me uh, in your own Bible. You can look in the app if you want, the Grace app. It'll be page 965 in the House Bibles, uh, or you can read it in your own. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of have to skip some of Paul's argument because he, he says a lot of stuff. Um, but essentially, if I had to sum up what he's trying to get at in this, in this topic, what he's basically saying is, look, Corinthian Christians, you don't think I'm impressive? Good. Because that's not what I'm going for. That's not, that's not my point, right? That, you're embarrassed that I'm suffering for Jesus. Well, guys, that's what it means to be an apostle, I'm a servant of Christ. That's all that matters to me. Those super apostles, right? Those super apostles, they boast about their spectacular ministry and how successful they are. But I have a sincere heart and I'm willing to give everything for this mission. If you can't tell the difference between those two and you can't tell which one looks more like Jesus, then you've got an identity problem. So here's what he says in 2 Corinthians 5 as he continues this this line of thinking. He says, and he's referring to himself and the other apostles um, that are not these super apostles. He said, Christ's love controls us. Since we believe that Christ died for all, we also believe that we have all died to our old life. He died for everyone so that those who receive his new life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ who died and was raised for them. So we've stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. At one time, we thought from, of Christ from a, merely from a human point of view, how differently we see him now. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. Okay, we'll pause there for just a second. The problem to Paul is that these Christians in Corinth were basing their whole identity on the things of this earth, thinking of things from a a human point of view, fame, right? Wealth, influence, power, whatever tribe was going to make them feel more successful or attractive. That's how they were thinking of their identities. In other words, they were living for themselves, as Paul says in verse 15. But if we are in Christ, Paul says, then, then all that stuff, that's not our identity anymore. Look at verse 17. Anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. Literally, uh, in Greek, he's saying has become a new creation. A new creation. In other words, our identity in Jesus is reformed from the ground up. We start to live for him. He starts to live through us. Look at verse 14. His love. The love of Jesus, not the stuff of this earth. His love is what controls us. That's where our identity is found. Now, let me ask you this. Why is Paul making such a big deal about this? Why is he going on and on? Is he embarrassed about the whole being thrown in prison thing? Is he, is he feeling a little bit insecure about these super apostles? Is that his motivation? I don't believe it is. No, the reason that he's emphasizing this to such a high degree is because he believes what I believe, which is that the church is on a mission. The church is on a mission. And having the right identity is kind of ground zero for that mission to succeed. 
Let me show you what I mean. Let's keep reading. Look at what Paul says next. He says, you know, uh, if anyone who is in Christ has become a new creation. He says in verse 18, and all of this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ. And God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. We're on a mission. This is why tribalism and vanity are like kryptonite to the church. This is why it matters so much to Paul. Because we are on a mission, as he says, of reconciliation. It's why we're here. It's why we exist, why we don't just withdraw and zip off to some disembodied heaven. We are here in the brokenness, in the filth, because we are here to change it, to to, uh, speak the love and the life of Christ into the brokenness of our world and to direct people by the way we live, by the way we love, to direct people right back to their creator. That's our mission. And if people in the church are are strutting around and and giving in to pride and greed and lust and, and choosing sides in every popularity contest, then here's why that's a problem, because our mission cannot succeed. We look, if we're doing all that, we look no different than anyone else, right? We look exactly the same. We are indistinguishable from the rest of the broken world. And our message of hope, it rings hollow. It rings hollow if we're giving in to tribalism and vanity. But if our words flow out of a core identity found in the, in the crucified Lord, if we humble ourselves like Jesus and, and just knock down the cultural dividing walls that, that, that divide us with self-giving love, well, that's when our message of hope starts to hit home. That's when lives begin to change. That's when our world starts to heal in ancient Corinth and in Hamilton County. Our identity is in Christ. Our mission will fail if it's found in anything else. Okay, so that's Paul's argument in a nutshell. What do we do with this in our digital world? We've already covered the problem that we're facing here, right? There's a massive multi-billion dollar industry that is incentivized to play on our need for belonging to drive us deeper and deeper into tribalistic extremes. That same, that same industry has, has incentivized these, these algorithms to manipulate our craving for affirmation to keep us projecting false versions of ourselves to the world. If we do nothing... If we just allow tribalism and vanity to define our lives, then we are going to look just like everybody else. But that is not an option for us. It's not an option because we are on a mission and we are called to show our friends and neighbors and coworkers that there is another way to live. You don't have to be defined by tribalism. You don't have to be defined by vanity. 
Which is why our fourth principle for this series is so important for you to remember. Likes do not define you. Likes do not define you. The thumbs up and the hearts and the fire emojis that you receive for being a good little cog in the machine, right? For isolating into your tribes, for giving into vanity, that does not capture who you really are. No, you are defined by your identity in Christ now. That's who you are. You are loved by the creator of the universe, right? You are transformed and being transformed by the spirit of God. And you have been chosen for a one-of-a-kind destiny. That is who you are. Your actions and your words and your emotions and your worldview, even the stuff you post online and like and watch, all of it should flow out of that core identity of who you are in him. A new creation, rebuilt from the ground up. Likes do not define you because the old life is gone and the new life has begun. You are on a mission. Your identity in Christ matters, especially now, especially in this hate-filled and self-obsessed culture that we find ourselves in. So let's get really practical. What would it look like? What does it mean if we, Grace Church, if we took this call to reframe our identity seriously? If we really believe that likes do not define us, what would happen? Well, two things or two, two reminders that we need to be chewing on. First, if this is the way it is, then it is time to move beyond tribes in the church. We've got to move beyond tribes. I know I talk about this a lot. I, I've covered tribalism a, a, a bunch of times, but here's the deal. If we claim to follow Christ, then we cannot keep giving in to the forces that want us to hate and demonize the other side, okay? Whatever that other side is. Paul says that God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. Well, I think we, we probably should start with the task of reconciling people to ourselves, if our identity is not in likes, if it's not in the false sense of belonging that we get from huddling up with other people just like us, if our identity is in Christ, then we are free to love those that the world says we should hate. Think of that. We can love those that the world says we should hate. It is time to move beyond tribes. So my encouragement to you is to pay attention to the stuff that you're reading and watching online? Is it, is it designed to make you outraged? Is it designed to make you hate that other side? Is the headline that you're reading written in such a way that's gonna make you wanna dehumanize your enemies? If that's true, if that's what you're reading, then chuck it in the trash. Remember, garbage in, garbage out, right? Pay attention to what you're looking at and think very, very carefully about what you're posting and, and commenting on online, especially in an election year, especially now. Are you building bridges? Are you demonstrating compassion? Or are you just going along with it like everybody else? Think about it. Are you feeding more fuel into the fire because of the, the virtue signaling gets you more likes and affirmation? Think about it. We are a community of love. 
We are a community where there is no Jew or Gentile, no slave or free. We are one in the Spirit. We love our enemies. That's who we are. It's what we do. That is our identity. It is time to move beyond tribes in the church because we are on a mission. And if we don't do it, no one will. It's time to move beyond tribes. Second, it's time to move beyond filters. Filters. And here's what I mean. The allure of vanity, of of making ourselves look good, it is strong. It is strong in our celebrity-driven culture. And we are always being tempted to airbrush away our imperfections. Now, that does include the literal, like, Instagram filters that so many of us use to make ourselves look blemish-free and beautiful, right? Maybe you make your biceps look a few inches bigger, like whatever it is, right? These are the literal filters that we are constantly tempted to use because you don't want to look kind of like ugly on Instagram. You want to look nice, so you use the filters. But it also, it also has to do with the, I'll call them the metaphorical filters that we're using, the little lies that we're, that we're you know, bumping up some, some truths about our achievements to make ourselves look, just pat, pat out the resume a little bit. Or the, the humble bragging of us posting about like, oh, I just, I'm just so humble. I can't believe I was able to get this new promotion. It's like, what are you really posting about, right? That, that's the kind of the, the humble bragging. That's what I'm talking, the metaphorical filters. We post this stuff in a quest for affirmation. But again, here's why this is a problem. It's not just because you're seeking affirmation from the things of this earth. That's a problem, but that's not, the, that's not the main problem. It's also not just because you're allowing vanity to warp your self-image. That's a problem, but it's not the main problem. No, the main problem is because when you give into this, this, this desire to, to, to airbrush your life, to post through filters, what you are doing is you are contributing to a culture of unrealistic standards. You are are adding fuel to the fire. Standards of beauty, of happiness, of success that are wreaking havoc on the younger generation. We talked about those statistics before. Do you know why those statistics are a thing? Because when children and teens see a world online full of perfect, beautiful, shiny, successful people, and then they look at themselves in the mirror, do you know what they see? They see someone ugly, They see a failure. They see a loser. No wonder they're struggling so much with their mental health right now. That's the world that they see online. But you and I have an opportunity to change that. Because likes do not define us. Likes don't define us. Your identity is not found in the affirmation of other people. The love and acceptance of Christ is enough because it's everything. The God of the universe adores you. Who cares what some rando on the internet thinks? I'm going to say that again. The God of the universe thinks you're incredible. He loves you. So why does it matter what other people think? You are on a mission. You can be your real self online. And I don't just mean the, the false authenticity that we use as another form of filtering and airbrushing. I'm talking about the real you, warts and all. You can be your real self online and show the world that there is another way to live because your identity is not found in what they think. It's found in who you are in him. 
Now, will being your real self cost you likes and influence and, and whatever? Perhaps, perhaps. But just think for a moment of how free you would be without this pressure to perform. A little bit later in 2 Corinthians, Paul, he describes the cost of being an apostle like this. I just think it's beautiful. He says, our hearts ache, but we always have joy. We're poor, but we give spiritual riches to others. We own nothing, and yet we have everything. Our world wants to define success and affirmation as the, as the be-all and end-all of life. But if likes do not define you, then you're free to be who you really are in Christ. You have everything. And when that's you, when that's your identity, well, guess what? That's when you start to change this broken world. It's time to move beyond filters. It's time to move beyond tribes. It's time to tell the algorithms that we're done playing their game. I know who I am in Jesus. I know who I am. And I'm not your pawn anymore. Let's pray. Well, Father, I recognize that this is one of those extremely easier said than done aspects of our faith. Because we may feel like, yes, I want to I wanna have my identity in you, but our entire world is relentlessly bombarding us with this, this, this need to be affirmed. And so, God, I pray, mo- most of all, more than anything else, that you would give us courage as a church. With your Holy Spirit's power, would you give us courage to, to put our identity deeply into you, to not care so much about what other people think, but instead to just care about you. Can you help us with that? Because we need some remedial help as a culture. Father, would you give us the wisdom to see how we're being manipulated and give us that invitation to live in the freedom that you provide. We trust you and we ask for your spirit to guide us. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen.